Our second Bible reading is John chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer, of judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray for God to help us understand what he himself has said in his word, the Bible. In Luke 24, two of Jesus' disciples say to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? We pray, Father, that their experience would be ours this morning. Would the scriptures be opened by the Spirit of Christ? And would our hearts burn within us? Amen. At some point, we've probably all had a phys ed teacher who said the words, no pain, no gain. 10 push-ups, 10 sit-ups, 10 squats, no pain, no gain. Your mother may have said something similar to you after telling you to eat all the vegetables on your plate. I know you don't like them, but eating them will be good for you. Or perhaps you've lived through a house renovation project that brought major upheaval to your family for months. But through it all, there was someone saying, it is better for us to go through this upheaval than to stay as we were. In today's Bible passage, Jesus' disciples are in that kind of no pain, no gain situation. They're about to go through a painful experience, the departure of Jesus, their master, their constant companion for the past three years. But Jesus assures them that it will be better for them to go through that pain than not to go through it. It will be better for them because of the gift they'll receive on the other side, a gift that can't be received without the pain of Jesus' departure. Let's look down, please, to the middle of verse 7. Jesus says, to the disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. Some other translations put it more simply. 
it is better for you that I go away. Jesus has already told the disciples that he's leaving them, and he knows that has made them sorrowful. In verse 6 he says, Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. He knows how much they will miss him. And yet he insists, there in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Surely the disciples at that moment were thinking, Nothing could be better than having you here with us, Jesus. And so Jesus immediately explains why his departure will make things better for them. He says halfway through verse 7, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, as we can tell from verse 13. And there are three categories of help that the Spirit provides, looking at this passage. And we'll spend the rest of this sermon looking at those three categories of help provided by the Helper. By the end of our time in this passage, my hope is that we'll all agree with Jesus that his departure was to our advantage because it led to the sending of the Spirit. The first category of help given by the Spirit is consolation. Consolation. We've already seen that, the, that Jesus expects the disciples to be comforted, consoled by the arrival of the Spirit. Jesus expects that they will look back on the sorrowful experience of his departure and say to themselves that it was worth going through that experience because of the advantages brought by the Spirit. Now, Jesus has already spoken to the disciples about this helper. And if we want to understand how the Spirit will comfort and console the disciples, we'll need to revisit what Jesus said to the disciples earlier that evening. The first time Jesus mentions the helper is in John chapter 14. Jesus tells the disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper and he will be in you. Another helper. The first helper must be Jesus himself. So when Jesus says the Father will give you another helper, he's saying another helper like me. He's saying the Holy Spirit will take my place in your lives. And Jesus isn't over-promising, because like him, the Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. We often sing the hymn, Holy, 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 here at Good Shepherd, and the final line of that hymn captures Christian teaching about the Trinity perfectly. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. First time I've ever sung in a sermon, and almost certainly the last. But the blessedness of the Trinity is a truth we need to sing about. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, 
exist in perfect unity as one God. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Each of the divine persons has the same nature. Each of the divine persons indwells the others. So when Jesus tells the disciples back in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, he really is saying a like-for-like replacement. The Spirit is united to the Son. The Spirit has the same nature as the Son. And the Spirit is indwelt by the Son. For those reasons, anyone who has the Spirit, which is all of Jesus' followers, has the Spirit of Christ within us. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 4 verse 6, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Now due to God's plan, the Spirit could only come after Jesus had died on the cross and then risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. Jesus had to go before the Spirit could come. And it is better for Jesus' followers to have the Spirit within us than to have the Son still here but no Spirit in our hearts. As the ESV Study Bible, an excellent study Bible, points out in its note on this verse, verse 7, it says, While Jesus was on earth, he could be in only one place at a time, but the Holy Spirit would carry on Jesus' ministry over the entire world at all times. While Jesus was on earth, he could be in only one place at a time. The Holy Spirit would carry on Jesus' ministry over the entire world at all times. End quote. Imagine if Jesus was still here and the Spirit hadn't been sent. We'd all want to book in time with Jesus, wouldn't we? We'd call up his receptionist and ask to book in some time with Jesus and his receptionist would say, oh, I'm afraid Jesus is fully booked for many years. But let me just check the calendar. Yes, it looks like he's got some space in July 2047. Would you prefer a morning or an afternoon appointment? Isn't it far better to have the presence of Jesus with us at all times, dwelling inside us by his Spirit? One of the themes of the farewell discourse, these five chapters, John 13 through 17, is the offer of peace. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says in John 14, verse 1. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, he says in John 14, verse 27. Another theme in these chapters is joy. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Later in chapter 16, Jesus will promise, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. How can ordinary human beings with our struggles, anxieties and problems have that kind of peace and joy in this world? The answer is that it's impossible. It is impossible for ordinary human beings to have the peace of Jesus and the joy of Jesus. But anyone who has the Spirit of the Son in their hearts 
is an abnormal, supernatural human being. Let me rephrase that. Anyone who has the Spirit of the Son in their heart is an abnormal, non-ordinary human being. That is what I meant to say. We have supernatural power inside us. It's good to be precise about these things. We are not supernatural. We have supernatural power inside us, which makes us abnormal, non-ordinary human beings. And that is how we can have the peace of Jesus, the peace he himself experiences, and the joy of Jesus, the joy that he himself experiences. You may, you may well want to say in response, look, I am a Christian, I have the Spirit, but I can't honestly say that my days are filled with this joy and this peace that you're talking about. On top of that, I know you fairly well, preacher, and from what I can see, I'm not altogether sure your days are filled with joy and peace either. It wouldn't surprise me if you're thinking those things. The peace and joy offered by Jesus through his Spirit don't automatically overflow in our lives. When we read the New Testament, what we find is that the Spirit can have more influence or less influence. And we ourselves have a part to play in inviting the Spirit to have full influence over our lives. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 4. Then in the next chapter, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. That's clearly a possibility. Be filled with the Spirit. That's clearly a possibility. You can receive more or less of the Spirit's help. If you receive less, you'll be grieving the Spirit who wants to help you. To receive more of the Spirit's help, we'll need to pray for it. And we'll need to give our attention to God's Word. In the Bible, the Spirit of God is always closely associated with the Word of God, with Scripture. That's because the Spirit is the breath of God. And breath is how words are communicated. The Word of God is communicated to us on His breath, the breath of the Spirit. The Spirit and the Word are closely associated all through the Bible. As I think about this passage, and long for more of the peace of Jesus and the joy of Jesus. And I see that I'm told to be filled with the Spirit. It motivates me to do those things, to pray for God's help through His Spirit and to pay close attention, eager attention to the Word of God. It's time for us to move on to the next category of the helper's help. We've been thinking about consolation, how the Spirit more than makes up for the loss of Jesus' physical presence. The second category of help that the Spirit gives is prosecution. Prosecution is what happens in law courts when a prosecuting lawyer seeks to apply the truth. And in verse 8, we see the Holy Spirit acting as a kind of prosecuting lawyer, delivering 
the prosecution that this world needs. Verse 8 says, And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is a formidable prosecutor, securing convictions on three charges, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus then goes on in verses 9, 10, and 11 to unpack each of those three convictions And we'll look at each in turn. First, sin. Jesus explains in verse 9 that the Spirit will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. Failing to believe in Jesus isn't the only sin that the world is guilty of, but it's one that will be especially relevant for the disciples, these 11 disciples Jesus is teaching. The disciples are in Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of the Jewish religion, the location of God's temple. The disciples have come from the north of Israel, from Galilee. We can imagine how intimidated they must have felt by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. For centuries, those religious leaders had controlled the worship of God in Israel. How in the world will these disciples from Galilee persuade the religious leaders that they're in the wrong? The disciples were like little league coaches from rural Kentucky showing up at the headquarters of Major League Baseball in Manhattan with the intention of persuading the commissioner and his staff that they're all wrong. That they're in the wrong. The disciples need help. Humanly speaking, they are in an impossible situation. They won't be alone once Jesus has sent the Spirit. And the Spirit will convict the religious leaders of sin on the basis that they had wrongly rejected Jesus. To be convicted of sin means to recognize that you're in the wrong. And it doesn't necessarily lead to a good outcome. Listen to this from the Tyndale Bible commentary. When the Spirit proves the world wrong, it could lead either to repentance and salvation or hardening of heart and condemnation depending upon the response of those proved wrong. End quote. So being convicted of sin, being convicted of a failure to trust in Jesus, a failure to believe in him as the Messiah, could lead to repentance and salvation or hardening of heart and condemnation. We do know of some religious leaders in Jerusalem who did respond well with repentance and faith and salvation. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I wonder if you've ever noticed that verse verse in Acts chapter 6 and, and pondered that verse. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith, meaning faith in Jesus. Acts chapter 6 verse 7. What a demonstration of the power of the Spirit helping the disciples who were proclaiming the message of Jesus. A large number of priests, those who served 
in the temple of God, became obedient to this faith in Jesus. Just think of how encouraging it must have been to the early church to have all of those priests joining them. Then in verse 10, Jesus says, the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. One of the potential problems that Jesus' departure would cause would be the loss of the one and only human being who had ever lived a totally righteous life. Without Jesus physically present in the world, the religious leaders who paid close attention to some of the finer details in the Old Testament law, they might start looking like the righteous people. Think of Paul before he put his trust in Jesus. In Philippians 3, he says of his former way of life that it was faultless from the point of view of legalistic righteousness. Faultless. Paul's outward righteousness must have made him a very intimidating figure. But thanks to the Spirit, the world will continue to be convicted of its failure to attain true righteousness. The Spirit will breathe out fresh scripture, recording the life and teaching of Jesus, so that all who read it and hear it will be confronted with the beautifully righteous life of Jesus. Lastly, Jesus says, the Spirit will convict the world of judgment. Because verse 11, the ruler of this world has been condemned. Jesus knows that by the time the Spirit is sent, the devil who rules this world will have been condemned. In John's Gospel, the devil is condemned through Jesus' death and resurrection. When Jesus broke out of his tomb on the third day, he showed that Satan had no hold on him. Satan had successfully tempted the whole human race up to that point, but Satan could not tempt Jesus to sin. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated that he had successfully resisted the devil's temptations and had lived a sinless life. From the resurrection onward, it has been clear that Jesus and everyone united to him through faith, we're all on the winning side. We share in his victory. Because through his death on the cross, Jesus cancelled the penalty we owe for our sin. Receiving in our place the punishment we deserved. That's how those who trust in Jesus share in his victory. His victory over sin, over the devil, over the grave. And if you're someone here today or watching this service online who's not yet following Jesus, you're on the outside looking in, you could put your trust in Jesus even today and join his victorious side. In verse 11, Jesus is saying that the helper will make it plain to people which side they are on. The condemned side 
or the victorious side. The helper will make it plain to people that unless they trust in Jesus, they'll stay on the side of defeat and condemnation. The devil's side. The side facing eternal punishment. As the message about Jesus is proclaimed throughout the world, the Spirit will convict the world of that reality, the reality of judgment, judgment to come. Many will suppress that truth, hardening their hearts against it. But many others will joyfully cross over to Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Saviour of the world. It's the Helper, the Spirit, who brings about those outcomes. He began his convicting work on the very day of his arrival, the day of Pentecost. You read in Acts chapter 2 that Peter preached a sermon to a crowd of thousands in Jerusalem. Peter finishes with these words, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now just listen to the reaction the spirit-powered reaction. Acts 2 verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They realized that as things stood, they were on the wrong side, the side facing judgment and condemnation. Peter doesn't hesitate. He says in response, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's press on to the final category of help provided by God's Spirit. We've thought about the consolation he brings, the prosecution that he undertakes. The third category of help is revelation. Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You can see right away how that fits the no pain, no gain pattern. The disciples simply were not ready to hear the many extra things that Jesus wanted to reveal to them. They had to go through the coming pain of Jesus' departure. Only then, after his death, resurrection and ascension, would they be ready to hear those many things. When the time comes, the Spirit will be their teacher. He will guide them into all truth. What gain that was. At various moments in this sermon series on Jesus' farewell discourse, we've had to remind ourselves that we are eavesdropping on a conversation Jesus is having with particular people, his 11 disciples. They all went on to be apostles with a special status. Matthias was later added to take the place of Judas. And then Paul was added as the apostle to the Gentiles. Twelve apostles for Israel, Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. Those apostles had a foundational ministry, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. And the church is built on their foundational ministry with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. 
part of the apostles' foundational work, the platform they laid, was setting down in Scripture the many things revealed to them by the Spirit. At the end of their lives, they didn't say to the next generation of believers what Jesus says in verse 13. The Spirit will declare to you the things that are to come. That's not the message the apostles gave to the generation after them. Instead, they speak of the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. That's Jude verse 3. And the good deposit that was entrusted to you. That's 2 Timothy 1 verse 14. The platform has been laid. The good deposit has been set down. The faith once for all entrusted to the saints has been revealed by the end of the apostles' lives. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, what you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Paul doesn't say what Jesus says here. He doesn't say to Timothy, make sure you listen out for new teaching from the Holy Spirit. He says, what you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching. This is a tremendously important point for us to grasp because it shows us where to find all the truth, to use the words of verse 13. All the truth. We find it in the New Testament, which contains the foundational deposit left for us by the apostles. The Old Testament was no longer sufficient in itself we needed additional truth, and all of that additional truth was revealed to the apostles by the Spirit and then preserved for them in the New Testament. Sometimes I tear myself away from the fire hose of information that is the internet by saying to myself, come on, you don't need to read anything that is on that thing. You, you don't need to read those web pages, to click on those links. You already have all you need in the Bible. It's very liberating. A very liberating thing to be able to say to yourself. Other documents might well be useful. I've quoted from a couple of commentaries during this sermon. But in the final analysis, we don't need them. In the final analysis, we have all the truth we need in the Bible. Praise God. Now that truth came to the apostles from the Spirit, but Jesus says in verse 14 that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. That means the whole of the New Testament has the same status as the words of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. People often try to drive a wedge between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of his apostles, such as Paul, but we mustn't do that. We mustn't let that wedge be driven. Because the whole of the New Testament should rightly be treated as the teaching of Jesus. I still have many things to say to you, he says in verse 12. What the apostles later heard from the Spirit were those many things 
that Jesus still had to say to them. All of the New Testament, after the Gospels, which actually is longer than the Gospels, he really did have many things to say to the apostles. Those extra parts, Acts, Romans, all the other letters written by Paul, and those other letters, and Revelation, the many things that Jesus still had to say to the apostles. That later part of the New Testament has the same status as the words of Jesus himself in the Gospels. It was better for the disciples to go through the pain of Jesus' departure than for him to stay with them. Jesus' departure was to their advantage because in God's plan, Jesus' departure had to happen before the sending of the Spirit. Only after the pain of Jesus' departure would the disciples receive the gain of the Spirit's consolation, prosecution, and revelation. As believers in Jesus, we've all of us already experienced something of the gain brought by the Spirit, something of the advantage that he has brought to the world. But what I'm preaching to myself as this sermon ends is those words from Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for taking such good care of us. We thank you that after Jesus' departure, you sent your Holy Spirit to dwell within all those who trust in Jesus. We are so grateful to have the presence of your Son with us through the Spirit. Father, we look forward to the day when Jesus will return to be with us forever. One of those many things revealed by the Spirit after his departure. We long for that day. Before that day comes, we pray to you that we would truly be filled by the Spirit. Amen.